0: The key word here is artisan, artisan being a person, and such a person is involved in all ways of his or her sensory faculties. In our training of our roasting, of our winnowing of the beans, of sorting, we emphasize that you are not a machine. We, we don't want a machine performing your job. You're here because you're a complex being with many senses, and be able to make decisions for the best outcome of this batch of chocolate so if you hear something that's unusual smell something taste see something or touch something that's unusual so a decision has to be made to preserve something that's unusual or to avoid any pitfalls and this is what separates an artisanal product someone is constantly monitoring someone is making a human decision at every turn of the process at every step of the way this doesn't mean that it's not scalable.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 50, part 2 of the So This Is My podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Ning Gang Ong. If you haven't yet listened to part 1, I'd recommend scrolling back and giving a listen first. But to recap, Ning is a farmer, chocolate maker, flavor fanatic, and founder of Chocolate Concierge and Culture Cacao where he makes incredible single-origin Malaysian chocolate. In the past episode, we talked about how he first went from coding to making chocolate and his experiences living with indigenous communities that involve, well, tigers and a murder. In this part two of Ning's episode, we get a little bit more technical, talking about fermenting cocoa beans for 71 days and how one batch of chocolate he made isn't something he can sell how he creates signature chocolate flavors like asam laksa and nasi karabu, his advice for aspiring chocolate makers, and yes, you can do it too. And finally, what flavors he would recommend first-time buyers or anyone really to purchase from Chocolate Concierge. So are you ready for part two of Ning's story? Let's go.
0: Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast,
1: where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. This is something that I found very interesting, that fermentation is such a critical part in allowing the signature flavors of the chocolate to come out. And it sounds very much like fermenting beer or wine where the cocoa beans take on the regional of terroir. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how the environment
0: influences the flavors that you get from the cocoa beans. Let's start with the environment then. There are different factors that contribute to the flavor of chocolate and chocolate is very complex in the sense that not one single compound is identifiable for chocolate meaning if you think about the fruits that we consume for example lemon or orange there are a number of synthetic flavorings because it's narrowed down to a handful if not one or two compounds then that can then be synthesized which will then give the connotation of what you would associate with a strawberry or an orange or a lemon. But when it comes to chocolate, there isn't a handful, but a larger selection of compounds. So therefore, you'd be challenged to find a synthetic chocolate flavor that doesn't contain cocoa when you're looking for an artificial or synthetic flavoring for chocolate. Having said that, We start with genetic, and then we look at all the external factors, including soil, climate, farm management, water management, fertilization programs. Once the pots are harvested, we look at post-harvesting process. The drying process does have a significant impact on flavor as well. Fermentation and drying, and to an extent, the storage of the beans, once it's dried, we call that post-harvesting. Once all of this is done, we have a cocoa bean that is then transported to a chocolate maker's facility. And from there, we have the sorting, roasting, winnowing, yada yada, grinding, refining, tempering, molding, and the rest to get us closer to a bar of chocolate.
1: So I've heard you say before that you are fiercely unblending. So I wonder what you mean by that and how you came to that.
0: The starting point of why I'm making the chocolate in the first place is because I want to taste something that is as close as I can get to the growing conditions that is expressive of the terroir. And another way of saying that is I want more terroir transparency in the chocolate that I make. This means that when I'm fermenting and drying, I'm only doing so on one day's Worth of harvest from one single region. And if the same origin has another harvest the next day, it's treated as a separate lot. So, first, for me, it has to be single origin, not just a a country, but not just a state, but a single growing region. Oftentimes, that's either a, a cooperative of small growers or a single estate. And then always, it's also one day's worth of harvest. These are the beans that I ferment. Because if today the, the pots are harvested and have started, let's say today's Thursday, I've started to ferment the Thursday's harvested beans. And by Friday, would have experienced 24 hours of fermentation. And on Friday, I go out to the farm and I harvest another batch of beans, now that batch of beans should really be fermented on its own because if I mix the Friday's tomorrow's harvest with the ones I've started today, then you're not optimizing for it. The four days that were harvested on Thursday would have been either over fermented, leaving the Friday one under fermented, or if you're trying to please both days of harvest, or so if you're going for the Thursdays, which was maybe the majority, and then the Friday's one would be under fermented. And therefore, that's not a result that is worthwhile just because we want to maybe save some time or not start another batch because we have less beans whatsoever. That's why I'm fiercely unblending in that way. I'm not looking for an average. I'm looking for practice that would highlight the fullest of the expression of one single harvest and of one single origin. And so this poses a different challenge because when I'm supplying these chocolates to chocolate lovers or baristas or chefs, sometimes they will say, hey, I know there is a difference in this batch compared to the last. Can you be more consistent? So I preempt it by telling my clients before I supply them that I'm starting from a point where I'm not going to try to be consistent. I'm consistent in the sense with the quality, with the grind size, with the roasting, the physical properties, the flow rate, the block size, and so on. That's consistent. But I'm not going to strive to be consistent across flavor profile because this is what differentiates between an artisanal seasonal maker compared to a commercial maker. Commercial maker is very consistent. And one way to do so is by blending across harvests. Let's say this year, I have two harvests. And last year, I have two harvests. When I make chocolate, I will not exhaust one season's worth of beans. I'll take 25% from this harvest. I'll take 25% from the last one. And I'll take 25% from last year's second harvest. And I'll take 25% from last year's first harvest. And by doing this very simply, I can create consistency. By blending across harvests. you would eliminate anything that is unusual about any single harvest. For example, when I receive a bag of beans and when we are roasting it, sometimes there was one that was just startling. Everyone just asked, hey, is someone peeling bananas? Is someone making banana cake? Or is someone making banana ice cream in the kitchen? We look around, we can't find any bananas. The bananas aroma was coming from... a a batch of beans and was so distinct as like a day and the first intention as an artisanal maker for us would be okay let's try to preserve this in the bar of the chocolate that we eventually make this is something that is amazing something that is worth celebrating we want to preserve it had we be interested about consistency the first thought would be how would we suppress it now how do we get rid of this so that it's not going to stick out like a sore thumb compared to our previous batches of beans because this would be a surprising turn of of flavor profile that is unexpected and therefore is undesirable for the sake of consistency and that's what sets what I believe to be what I want to do as an artisan maker compared to some of the other makers who prioritize, who place consistency as higher in their list of priorities.
1: So it sounds like you can't scale what you are doing because it's very artisanal, it's very distinct according to what you're doing. So is it fair to say that you are unlikely to ever change your stance? You want to stay true to your vision rather than trying to see how can I make this a far larger operation than it currently
0: is? The key word here is artisan. Artisan being a person and such a person is involved in all ways of his or her sensory faculties. In our training of our roasting, of our winnowing of the beans, of sorting, we emphasize that you are not a machine. We we don't want a machine performing your job. You're here because you're a complex being with many senses and be able to make decisions for the best outcome of this batch of chocolate. So if you hear something that's unusual, smell something, taste, see something, or touch something that's unusual, So a decision has to be made to preserve something that's unusual or to avoid any pitfalls. And this is what separates an artisanal product. Someone is constantly monitoring. Someone is making a human decision at every turn of the process, at every step of the way. This doesn't mean that it's not scalable. If I have a larger plot of land, if I'm dealing with 10 times the number of beans versus now, which is maybe close to a ton a month, can I still be artisanal? The answer is yes. The roaster might be bigger, but I can choose to have a roaster who's a master at what he he does and have that person be empowered to make decisions related to flavour development, roasting and so on. So it's a choice. I don't think being artisan is contradicting the desire to scale. I think for a business like chocolate making, it has to scale. Because that's when there are more interesting and exciting, when a throughput is more, more people get to enjoy it. The social impact is greater. The environmental impact is great. It's not a desire of mine to keep the business operating at the, at the volume we are today. That's also the reason why we moved facility last year in September. And at the time we were projecting, we needed three times more capacity and then MCO, the pandemic happened. So we didn't use the the excess capacity that we moved into in this new facility, but it's there now. Hopefully we'll use more of that capacity as we move along. But it has been an improvement since last year until this year.
1: One of the things I notice about the fermentation process that you're involved is that you also really play around with the time from the standard six days all the way up to, I believe, 71 days. I just wonder, you know, what kind of impact those number of days add to just the flavor. And you've said before that even 71 days, you thought you could go beyond that, in which case, how far can you go? Because the longer that you ferment it, increase the chance of it being exposed to something that you don't want and contaminate whatever it is that you're fermenting.
0: The risks are definitely higher when fermentation durations are pushed for longer because there are more things that can go wrong with it. But that doesn't mean shorter is less risky as well. Sometimes bad fermentation can happen within a day or two and create odors or flavors that are just so off-putting. And therefore, a lot of Malaysians who are familiar or has a memory of being close to a cocoa fermentation facility or drying. and these are Malaysians and the first reaction is ooh, it stinks. that's what they remember. However, that's because the fermentation is often not controlled. My journey when I first started fermenting, the first time when I was camping out at the farm and just overlooking the whole fermentation process and then at the end, bagging the beans into my car because I didn't want the beans to be subjected to rain. So the beans were in the passenger cabin and for the whole drive of two hours, I was inhaling these beans. And because the fermentation when I first started wasn't the best, I vividly recall having to wind down the window because it was so strong smelling. It was sour and it smelled very strong and not in a way that is pleasant, very musky, like a sourdough that has been forgotten in a closet and found again in a week. You know, that kind of really funky aroma. And then eventually we discovered that by changing the parameters of fermentation and changing the vessel, by changing the material that the cocoa beans are in touch with to oak. And just by tweaking these little things, now the cocoa beans, I kid you not, smell like honey. My last farmhand was like, yeah, it's like, boss, me." i said yes yeah, that's right it smells really good it smells like maple syrup like honey and some fermentation smells like beer brewing or good sourdough like a bakery the difference is day and night so much so that when i made these changes when i was transporting the beans i would wind up the window and i would be happily driving over the hour and a half two hours and inhaling this aroma The process of fermentation is when I started, and this is something that is centered to how I operate. I'm trying to find my own answers and challenge the norm or, or understand why convention is what it is or why it's prescribed the way it has been. For example, the idea of why should cocoa be fermented between five to six days or four to six days? Why not less and why not more? I wasn't satisfied just to read about the reasons. I wanted to experience it for myself through trial and error. You don't have to terminate the whole ferment. You could always taste beans on the first day, second day, third day, fourth, fifth, and then realize what the evolution of flavor is like from day to day and decide when that fermentation needs to be terminated. But on the other hand, I wanted to know how long can I push it? And in order to do so, I wanted to explore other ways of ferments, not the typical cocoa fermentation which starts with yeast fermentation, which is anaerobic, changing the sugars and the carbohydrates that are found in the pulp of the cocoa, the sugary stuff, into alcohol and other metabolites. Moving past that would be the mesothermic phase where the bacteria, lactoacid bacteria and acetic acid bacteria, AAB and the LAB predominantly, then converting the alcohol and some of the metabolites from the yeast fermentation into other components that give rise to enzymes encroaching into the interior of the bean through the membrane. And these enzymes are then responsible for breaking down the long-chain carbohydrates within the bean and the long-chain protein. Groups of enzymes that are then doing this are the protease, for example. And this is where it's good to understand that the cocoa fruit produce this bean not so that humans can have chocolate. The beans are produced so that the tree can propagate itself. The seed of the cocoa, what we call bean is really a seed, is technically a store of energy. It has to be undesirable so that animals don't bite into it and don't end up consuming it and if they do it's not going to give them much benefit so this bean is so densely packed with energy that it's not often accessible to our digestive process and this enzyme and therefore because it's not accessible it's not desirable the raw bean in terms of flavor because our body is signaling to us Don't bother with it. I'm not going to make this pleasant to you because it's in a form where it's not going to be accessible to your body if you consumed it. And at the same time, this bitterness and astringency signals to your brain, you shouldn't consume it. And it's also a way for the tree to protect its beans so that the civet cats, the rats, the fruit bats, the birds are not consuming the beans. So they will be discarding it or passing it through their digestive tracts. But because the enzyme now has enroached through the membrane and are acting upon this long chain, hard to break up compounds and chopping them up into smaller pieces. Now it's interesting because now the body can access it as a source of nutrition. It's no longer just soluble fibers. It's in a form where the body can understand, can utilize, and that's where the flavors are created. The the precursors of flavors of chocolate are first found or are developed during the fermentation phase.
1: Another process that you mentioned earlier was drying process. You use the sheltered sun drying process, which is very different from commercially, which is just using machines. So how did you come to that decision that you wanted to use this method and why is it so important?
0: it's a practical and logical step for us. I think we were one of the first ones in Malaysia to have done so as well because I want to eat my own beans. When I observe how beans are usually dried at floor level, a lot of times with chickens, cats, dogs, walking all over it and just being stored outdoors at night just doesn't give me the confidence to want to consume more of that stuff. So when I thought about, okay, what would make me confident to consume the beans that I produce first, and also to be considerate of the ergonomics of the workers. When we are sorting beans and if it's at ground level, it's very difficult. You know, we're not observing it. A lot of times there is no selection process at that height. We're just raking and whatnot. But uh, if it's at table level or, or counter level, then it's closer to us. It's easier for us to work with a straight back without bending over. And it's just a a better experience overall. I wanted to do it in a greenhouse so that if it rained, if there were bird droppings, it's not going to affect the hygiene of the bees. Because a, a lot of times I'm consuming these beans raw. I'm doing this without having a kill process or I'm not pasteurizing the beans before I'm consuming in, a, in for the sake of understanding the flavors of the beans before the roasting process takes place I'm oftentimes found just peeling beans and just consuming it and looking for different beans and trying to taste different size beans or different looking beans just understand how it would take it to the next step so for me to do that in a safe way meant that it has to be as clean as possible initially I was considering should I do it on a material that I wanted to be sustainable in the sense I didn't want to change it all the time. Plastic out of the question because it would deteriorate and eventually would maybe break off and be found in the beans. So plastic was out of the question. Metal was out of the question because it would further oxidize the beans while it's not fully dried. So the first day, second day, third day of the beans drying, if it was in contact with metal, the, the beans would further oxidize, turn black even. So metal was out of the question. So I looked at other material and I found one that ticked all the check marks of being sustainable, natural, affordable. And we decided on bamboo surface because bamboo was found in abundance around the farm because the farm is surrounded three sides by a river. There were clumps and clumps of bamboo that are growing naturally along the banks of the river and to utilize a material that takes no carbon at all to transport to the farm because it's right there. It's two minutes walk away towards the river to collect and then to trim it, to saw it, and to flatten the the bamboo so that it can be used as a table was the most old tech, but one that we had to rediscover. Even if pieces of the bamboo, for whatever reason, end up in the bags of the beans, it would still be winnowed out. It's not a danger to the health. It's a natural material when we finish. So the bamboo needs, set surface needs to be changed about every year and a half to two years, if it's frequently used what we do is we would just let that compost or we would burn it. So it's not a problem at all.
1: And one thing I also noticed is that you experiment when you're making the chocolate itself with a lot of local flavors like Asam laksa or sour fish noodle soup. I believe your 2019 laksa bonbon was highly sought after chocolate. So how do you even come up with these experiments and figure out how to experiment with it? I mean, with the laksa particular flavor, you had 10 different ingredients in it
0: that's right we it was a lot of actually more than 10 but from the vegetable base or the vegetable base and fruit base like pineapple chili mint galangal yeah ginger torch all of that forms our impression of what asam laksa is and it's really mind-boggling because we've only experienced this combination of herbs, spices and fruit in a savory dish and when all of this comes together Without the salt, for a Malaysian who is familiar with asam laksa, is just like a mind twist because your mind is telling you this is a savory combination, but it's not savory, it's sweet. Therefore, itself, it's quite a journey. And that's what put us, I think, on the map, that creation of bonbon and we were discovered by the Michelang guide and we're credited for that creation. But my favorite now for a local creation is the nasi karabu chocolate. This was done just prior to this raya. And you said fish sauce earlier. Actually, we are operating a vegetarian kitchen So there is no fish. We don't even use gelatin in our creation. We do use some eggs and dairy. So it's vegetarian, not 100% vegan, although we have more and more vegan selection. And the karabu one has a vegetarian voodoo sauce that is made from fermented soy and miso. For me, it's a flavor bomb, but it was just so fun to create because that meant that the team and I, we were hopping from one karabu stall offering to the next and trying to find out what made a good nasi Karabu. And so we entirely enjoyed the research process in the R&D that led to the creation of the kerabu bonbon. That was really fun.
1: I wonder if you could give us a little bit more detail of that entire process of creating, say, the nasi karabu flavor. So you have that research period. Obviously, you need to know what an actual nasi karabu tastes like that's good. But how do you take that and then input it into the chocolate itself? How long is that process? How do you play around with it?
0: If we're lucky, it takes shorter. Sometimes we think where the flavor is, how it will combine. And when we execute it, Maybe it hits the mark or maybe it doesn't. Before we embark on such a testing, sometimes it's very hard to tell how many iterations we would need to go through before we have something that we're happy with. And sometimes you nail it on the first try. Like I wanted to do a rock melon bonbon. I wrote the recipe and on the first try, nailed it. And sometimes everyone's like, wow, this melon bonbon is like such a burst of fresh melon. And it's like, wow, okay, fantastic. But that's. The exception, not the norm. I think about not just the flavor in the combination or the pairing, but also the weight of each of the component, the textural weight has something to do with the fat content of each component, the viscosity or the fluidity of each of the component and visually what we want to see when we have that chance. You know, a lot of people, they just pop the whole chocolate into the mouth. They don't even take a bite and take a look. But on the rare occasion, if someone does that with the kurabu, they will find a blue layer which is actually colored naturally with bunga telang so the bunga telang actually does nothing in terms of flavor is there just because in case someone bites in they were going to they will find blue that is consistent with what we associate with a nasi karabu and then they would find a grease and then they'll find a layer of the budu sauce which is dark brown so a lot of times a lot of thought has been poured into it and all of this has to happen in the format of a 10 gram bite-sized gem. and sometimes the team just hate it because like you're doing like 20 steps and someone just pops it without much thought and then their comment is i don't like this nasty crab crev- is too weird you know <laughs> but i know why i'm doing it so it's important to understand that a lot of times you're creating these recipes that really are it's so complicated but at the end it's not everyone's cup of tea so you have to be your own judge Don't let anyone tell you what you should be aiming for. For me, if 10 customers tell me this nasi kerabu sucks, but I think, oh man, this is the bomb. I'm still going to feature it, but I'm not so dumb. I'll still give these chocolate lovers what they like, the classic. I'll never remove the classic range, which is to me very boring. The hazelnut milk chocolate is like the tried and tested, and then the salted caramel combination, which is so done like 2015, but people are like, ooh, this is a great combination, salted caramel with sea salt, ooh, this is so innovative, yawn, but it works. And this is what's fun about a tasting. And The next phase of what we want to do is to provide a tasting experience that is tailored. Therefore, I'm not going to give the same menu. I'm not going to walk myself into a wall. And therefore, when I'm providing chocolates with my collaborators, researchers in the cocoa board, I take note of each individual's preference. To certain individual, I will provide for tasting a dark bar, 70% and above. But to other individuals, although they are in the cocoa industry, I will provide a milk chocolate bar, still a single origin in the sense of the cocoa. The cocoa are all from one single origin, but then I'll make it to a sweeter form, but also include the dairy components so that it's going to take off some of the stringency, the fruity acidity that's associated with cocoa or fine cocoa and give an experience that is closer to what they expect or what they would think of when they think of a chocolate confection. Be consistent with that for them sometimes when we are sitting down and doing a tasting and there are certain feedbacks that are not favorable to what you're doing because some of this comes to preference and in a tasting we as much as we can design it in such a way where the preference always comes at the end we don't start with preference when we're evaluating cocoa what are the physical the objective truths about the tasting and for cocoa we look at the cocoa intensity we look at the acidity we look at the stringency, bitterness, we look at the complexity, and then we look at the finish, which is how long it lingers on the palate. And these are objective truths. If the panel comes together and does a benchmark, meaning we all agree on this chocolate as being rated this way, then the rest of the samples will be rated in relation to the benchmark. And so there will be some objectivity when a panel comes together and provides an input of the different samples and then the very end we always leave this to the very end which is what do you prefer which was your best sample we are oftentimes doing all these tasting double blinded meaning the coordinator who's presenting the samples don't even know what they are presenting they don't even know the origin or the the recipe or the percentage all they know is three randomized numbers associated with the sample. And this is important because we are hyper suggestible. If let's say the coordinator who's serving the sample has a slight micro expression, which is a smirk or or a frown, the Panelists may not even be consciously aware that they have seen it, but subconsciously that's going to affect their objectivity and every little bit counts. The music that's playing, so we don't play any music, the palate cleanser. So we try to be consistent with that, you know, either salted crackers or warm water and whatnot. It's not ideal in the sense that a lot of our panels, we're not doing it at a staggered time because a lot of times in such an event, we schedule a start and end time that everyone is together. But we try to make it so that they're not influencing each other too much in a sense that the results are only discussed after everyone has a chance to taste.
1: And speaking of tasting, I believe Darren Teo of Dewakan tasted this chocolate you made with nips that was aged in hummus and buried under the cocoa tree. And after that, he said, I want to buy everything.
0: That's right. You just ate hummus and it's, oftentimes what people think it was aged in but in fact it was aged in humus. Humus Humus being the decomposing organic matter that is basically compost. What we've done with that was I wanted to make a batch of chocolate that had a connection to decomposing, deteriorating, rotting nature of what's under the growth of the cocoa close to the earth as possible and even below the earth. And I had this crazy idea that more than just ferment, what if I allow some of these cocoa nibs to decompose in a way that is right under the same very trees that they were harvested from originally? So if I buried these cocoa nibs in a way that could still ensure their food safety when I do excavate it, what kind of chocolate would I make? It's a bittersweet story because the first experiment, it was just fantastic. I mean, I not had a chocolate that was so early, but because of the earlier success uh, and Darren having tasted that, so he's really locked onto that. He's focused on that, but it wasn't something that I could reproduce even after attempt after attempt. So the second try, the whole batch of nibs had growth on it that was orange colored, like warning orange, you know, if you're like, driving by the road and you see these cones that tells you don't go there, that colored fungus was growing on the nibs. But that didn't put me off. So when I was faced with the nibs that had all these orange colored cauliflower that have sprung up from it, my initial thought wasn't, let's throw this out. My initial thought was, oh, what kind of chocolate would that make? So I made a chocolate out of that and I still have a block of it, which I chip chip away at once in a while, but I can't in good conscience sell because I know that when fungus is orange colored, it's often associated with a bad mold and there is very dangerous aflatoxin that can accumulate in the central nervous system. And this is how people get into trouble health-wise. And you don't know this in the short term, but if you consume this in the long term, this is how it's going to show up in, in your health. So I can't sell it. So it's there and I'm eating it. and it seems <laughs> fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I, I, I think I'm nuttier by the day because of this. It, if I die an early death, please have the post-mortem people do a check on aflatoxin. It's probably going to be the death of me. But because it's so unique as a taste that I can't think of using it because yeah, I can't do it. I'm probably going to end up eating my whole supply.
1: What is the taste then? You said it was very unique.
0: Oh now, with that question, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going try Another it. <laughs> chunk of I'm going to eat another chunk of it. It's been a while since my last nibble, but it has not one where you would traditionally think of as mushroomy because mushroomy is an earthy taste, so it has that deep wooded earthiness, but on top of that, there is this cheesiness as well, not too far off from a cheddar, so if you can imagine wood. Cheddar, and then add to that a little bit of a funk. That's how that chocolate is. I'm just <laughs> gonna have it again. I'm, you're not having any of it unless you, <laughs> unless you swear that you'll spit it up So yeah. that block is labeled myco as in like mycon, like yeah, mitochondrion. Um, anyway, <laughs> it, it it says do not eat unless you're Ning on the label. <laughs> do not consume unless you're Ning. Yeah, You've, it's still there.
1: Did you ever doubt yourself when COVID hit?
0: You know, right before COVID hit, I was at the brink of burnout. I was frantically hiring. I needed to replace myself in more capacities than one. I think I secretly wished for the world to stop and then I got my wish. (laughs) So so MCO version one was in effect a holiday. I was like, fantastic. My to-do list is getting shorter by the day I'm getting to sleep more. I'm getting to be physically active, healthier, have some semblance of a work-life balance. But then at the same time, the business wasn't doing so great. The demands totally fell off and that couldn't come at a better timing for me because I was just going to ramp up in terms of my hiring. So I froze all of that hiring process. So I didn't take on more financial responsibility that I couldn't handle during that time. And in hindsight, that was a blessing. Had I been faster, more efficient in the hiring, I would have been in trouble. So all you procrastinators out there, it's not all bad news. Then as it dragged on and this closing of the economy and opening and closing and opening and cinemas, just not able to come back and the tourism just dead in the water right now for a year and a half hasn't been the most helpful but we're looking to pivot so technology is one that i will be looking to in the short term to medium term having said this i don't have a digital presence i don't have an online card it's a big problem for me which i want to address I noticed Um,
1: like anyone who wants to buy has your personal number.
0: (laughs) That's right. That's not healthy. That's something I need to get out of. But the issue with that was because having come from a application development background, I know what it takes to do it. And my current website was done within a day. I woke up a day. I say, okay chocolate concession is a website in the morning registered for the domain and then started coding no content management system hard coding collected all the photos I needed formatted sent it I mean did it in the right resolution and then by midday got my domain put it in, tested the server, uploaded by about midnight. At this time, several cups of coffee and several bars of chocolate in. It was done. So I know what it takes. And this is my downfall because I'm looking at all these quotations for a functional web store. And I'm thinking, gosh, it will take me three days to do. And if that bill was, say, 30,000 ringgit, my question to myself was, can I pay myself a thousand ringgit to do nothing else but this? And I'm starting to realize that the, the willingness to embark and to do something and the ability to clear one's palate in order to do so are two separate things. So I just need three consecutive undisruptive days to do that, which for now, a year in, I have not encountered. I can't give myself three days of without interruption. So it's something that I have to come to terms with that.
1: And for those who want to become chocolate makers like you, what's your advice?
0: Just do it. Just do it. Start somewhere. You know, ask the question, what makes you roll out of bed? What gets you excited? What flavors are you looking to tingle your senses and roll with it? One thing about chocolate is that it shouldn't be Or at least I don't take it too seriously. It can be taken very seriously, but at the same time, you give that to a two year old and they are automatically experts about what chocolate they love at every stage of someone's culinary or gourmet journey. You know, they each have their preferences going forward. So just do it and, but know that a business is more than just making chocolate. If you want to run the business, it's this other things. It's the accounts, the finance. Do you enjoy doing that? If not, how are you going to outsource it? Who are you going to outsource it to? HR, hiring, firing, training, sales, logistics, storage, and then certification. Chocolate making as a business is not too different than any other business. It has the same components. You need to hire managers, middle managers. You need to hire cooks, chefs. You need to have a facility, which meant you need to be scouting for the best rent you can get there's utilities and all these things that an entrepreneur or a startup has to deal with it's not too unique in that sense but if i have to say anything it's rewarding if you love chocolate and i eat chocolate every day but moderation moderation no more than two bars no more than 10 bonbons yeah and it, it can be very rewarding but watch out for the pitfalls at the same time don't get burned out
1: For someone who wants to try chocolate concierge chocolate for the first time, what kind of flavors would you recommend?
0: Ooh, so this comes to the part where I answered earlier, there are different chocolates for different people. I asked the 20 questions for chocolate. You know, are you (laughs) explorative in, in terms of the food that you enjoy? Do you find yourself tending to stick to the familiar or are you...
1: Let's try someone who's explorative, who wants to push the boundaries.
0: Then you should just say, surprise me and give me a wild card. Just give me a wild card. And as for the latest experiments, whatever the latest experiment is, usually seasonal. So if we get a batch of cinnamon bark that's fresh from a tree, we'll use that. We'll make a cinnamon chocolate. If we get bananas, ripe bananas, different varietals of bananas, or melon, or if we get a batch of coffee beans, then we're pulling espresso shots will make that into a chocolate so whatever is the latest and greatest as they say that's the one you should be asking for because we're always pushing the envelope and that's where the excitement is and you may like it you may not like it and i probably am an exception when it comes to what I want to consume, in a sense that I I see myself as curious. So when something doesn't agree with me in terms of taste, and it's something that maybe I've paid a lot of money to taste in a maybe a fine dining setting, my feedback or my opinion of that experience is not one that I will say, hey, you know that I regret it. That food is not delicious, and therefore I won't recommend it. I come from a kind of a, a weird perspective, which is if I pay a lot of money to have a tasting, I expect my palate to be challenged. I want the chef to take me to the brink of my comfort zone and sometimes to cross that line into to areas when I'm uncomfortable. And that's what I want to achieve when I'm invested in the tasting. Because in Malaysia, we are really sport of choices. For less than 20 ringgit, you could have a really compelling plate of chicken rice or chocolate etiao or bakute or nasi lemak and things that are so cozy and familiar and pleasing. So what's the incentive if, if, if you want to just enjoy something that's in front of you and just have the most lip-smacking experience? You don't have to reach deeper into your pocket for that, you know. So what's the incentive to go beyond? For me, it comes from also a recognition that my personal preference journey has changed. I used to hate beer. I didn't like any alcohol. I didn't understand red wines. I preferred whites. I preferred sweeter wines. I don't understand why people love whiskey. I didn't understand why people drank coffee in the morning. But all of these have turned 180 degrees. Love red wines now, whiskey, bring it on, bourbon, sake gin but i recognize that my preference changed from time to time and i would be conceited to think that whatever i prefer now would be what i prefer going into the future and what's going to allow me to develop or come to my own conclusion with that is when my palate is challenged I want the chef to challenge me and give me a combination that I haven't experienced before, something that's going to surprise me. Not necessarily wow, but just surprise me, something I, I've not, not tasted before. And that's what I'm looking for. Because maybe the chef, from his perspective, he may be at a place where this is familiar or pleasant. And using him as a reflection will allow me to get to a new place with regard to my own sensory journey. And that's how I look at
1: Well, thank you so much for your really insightful uh, time with me. Do you feel like you have found your why?
0: I continue to find my why. I don't think it's one single train stop. It's a series of continuously finding the purpose. And to answer your previous question, I don't think I even approached it. If someone is looking to try the chocolate, there's no other way but to drop me a WhatsApp personally. That's, how, that's the only way to do that currently. That may change hopefully before the end of the year. But that's how it is right now.
1: And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind?
0: That's not one that I normally honestly think about. First thing that comes to mind is for all the reforesting and the planting of endangered and threatened species on the plot that I'm operating. I think that would be the first thing that comes to mind when I think about legacy because the life of these trees will extend beyond my lifetime and maybe the next few generations. I'm interested to set up uh, a way for this piece of land to be held in perpetuity with the understanding that the trees will not be cut down and it will not be developed that's the first thing come to mind that comes to mind the social impact and the environmental impact is what really is important to leave behind the chocolate business the sales of the chocolate is just a means towards that and it's fun it's what sustains the whole project financially and on a more personal level, place a piece of chocolate that is going to be magic to whoever consumes it. If it's a two-year-old or a retiring grandma or a colleague, whoever who encounters our, our creations, if we could just give them that little bit of the magic that we experience here in the kitchen, that's the impact that I want to have with regard to the chocolate.
1: And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person?
0: not be a hypocrite (laughs) the ones that i'm tuned into are probably the ones that i'm the weakest in therefore the ones that i'm paying attention to because i want to hold myself accountable for example environment is important that means i'm going to try to get the kitchen to be as far as we can towards a zero waste right now it's not but it's something we are to be sustainable in terms of our usage uh, of energy, to take care of the ecology in terms of how we're managing our farm, and also to have a community impact to treat the people in our team, the stakeholders, the growers in a way that is just and fair and kind as a business faces challenges sometimes it's easy to lose sight of why we're doing what we do and hopefully as i'm reminding myself that the listeners your podcast can find some bits that are useful to them
1: where can people go to find out more about what you're doing and buy some chocolate from you
0: Oh, okay. Well, drop me a line on WhatsApp. I'm also on Instagram, Choc Concierge, C-H-O-C, Concierge, C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E. We have a Facebook page, which I sometimes post about what we do at our farm level. And when MTO is over, we'll be posting a call for volunteers to come and be connected with nature, taste the chocolate and come and plant some trees and see what kind of cleanup projects we can do along the rivers and so forth.
1: And that was the end of part two of episode 50. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothisismy.com forward slash 50 dash two. And i will like a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter. And tuned for next Sunday, because we will be meeting the senior vice president of Viacom CBS, who was involved in the conceptualizing and running of popular US late night shows like The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Conor O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon, and right now, the Late Late Show with James Corden. He said so much about what life is like behind the scenes, including what it was like to get the go-ahead for some of James' crazy episodes like skydiving with Tom Cruise, Booking Prince Harry, and One Direction on the Show, what it's like being on the show himself, and so much more. It was a tremendously fun interview to do, and you might recognize one or two of the people we discuss. Wanna hear more? See you next Sunday.